we should use it as a learning experience, as a teaching exercise. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. That was 1996 Medicine Laureate Peter Doherty on what we should be learning from the ongoing pandemic. We should look at it from every possible aspect, from scientific, tourism, economics, political, every possible aspect, and see what we can do to either prevent this happening again or to be ready for it. Australian immunologist and pathologist Peter Doherty was awarded the Nobel Prize together with Rolf Sinkenagel for his discovery of the role of T-cells in the immune system. Currently in the spotlight due to the COVID-19 pandemic, T-cells are a type of white blood cell which fight viral infections in the body. Nobel Prize Conversations is produced with the support of our Nobel International Partners, 3M, ABB, Ericsson and Scania. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. At 80, Peter Doherty is still an active author and forward thinker. Two of his recent books, 2015's The Knowledge Wars and 2013's Pandemics, What Everyone Needs to Know, seemed almost to predict the future. When you wrote the book in 2013, did you think that you'd find yourself living through a pandemic as we are? It was always out there. There was a lot of discussion in the in the field, though I'm not an epidemiologist. I mean, these are the guys who really focus on this. Uh, I'm a, a lab scientist who's interested in the way the diseases work and how the, how the immune system works and stuff. But I'm very broad in, in my approach to things. And so I was surprised when I was asked to write the book and uh, I thought about it, should I do it? Because I'm not really in that field. But I thought, well, if I write it, it'll be different. So I did. And it, it was question and answer book, very simple, um, in a series, whatever what everyone needs to know. I mean, it was vastly outsold by the Catholic Church, what everyone needs to know, which is a much more fascinating topic. But um, it's done okay. I think it's been translated into Spanish and now Chinese this year. Uh, and it was pretty much right, but I had no real concept uh, what it meant socially and economically. I mean, I was putting in things like a big flu pandemic would cost trillions. Those were the estimates that were around and that we could handle it by isolation and using uh, internet, uh, which we have done, of course, but had no real understanding of how it would fix, affect so many industries. In a sort of prescient way, you had also written, I'm, I mean, I remember reading your Nobel biography, which you wrote in 96, I suppose, when you uh, received the prize or maybe 97. And then you said that in terms of viral pathogenesis, there was too little funding, too little time, too few people working in it, um, too many problems. So you were already spotting the fact that there was a paucity of knowledge and there was a problem on the horizon. Yes, there are some medical fields that have focused enormous amounts of attention for obvious reasons, the, uh, uh, for instance, cancer and, and heart disease and all the rest of it. And, uh, and the hematological malignancies, particularly those diseases. But, but um, infection and immunity was very big early on in science. But then by mid-1960s, people like McFarlane Burnett, who was, won a Nobel Prize in 1960 and was a great 
virologist and then one up for immunology were saying the era of infectious disease is over. So um, that, um, of course, we were shown that was completely wrong with, with HIV AIDS and then antibiotic resistance came in and bacteria. And, and so it's gradually been building more people in that area, but it's a very complex area of science. And, um, and the virologists for a time were just really interested in what was happening in cell cultures. And they sort of, uh, and, but recently, it, it, there's a lot more attention got come onto it. And I'd say recently over the last 10 years, partly because we can start to work out how the diseases work through using things like knockout mice and all sorts of modern molecular technology. So there's been more people in it, but it's never been an enormous uh, uh, focus of attention because a lot of the infectious disease problems, as we perceived them, were really in the developing world. And now we've got our dose here. You just mentioned we're in for the long haul. Did you know, even at the start of this, people's prediction that it would all be over by Christmas sort of thing was completely wrong? I was really asleep at the wheel when it started because I was working on this Empire War and Tennis book. <laughs> I was turning 80 uh, this year and uh, our last competitive research grant came to an end in December 2019. So I was thinking, well, finally, I'll step away from this. So I didn't really catch on to what, how serious it was until we were getting up into February. In fact, on uh, the beginning of April, end of March, I was supposed to be in Padua. Hmm. for a, uh, a conference, uh, for a, a public communication science thing. But um, uh, so I booked tickets to go in mid-February and then the following week I cancelled them because, yeah. I said, so, because it was moving fast. It was really moving fast. And the Italians weren't, were surprised when I cancelled. And yeah. yet within a month they were in a hellish situation. And, uh, and, and it was terrible, yeah. But we do keep seeing that, don't we? We keep seeing how people's, people's expectation of norm, normality returning moves ahead in a sort of a front that's quite close to where we, we are, that people say, it's bad now, but it will be okay then, and it will be okay then, and it will be okay then. It's very hard for people to grasp that things are shut down for a long time. I, I think uh, that's a very unwelcome message, and, um, but it's, it's, it's going to be... Tr- true in many senses, I think. And of course, the people that I'll be talking later in the week to, I think 5,000 people who are part of the conference industry around the world. They organise conferences everywhere and and they're sort of hoping it'll go away, but they're not stupid and uh, they're running more conferences online, obviously, but there's not the same same effect locally in employment and all those things. All, or lots of places try to have conference centres so they can employ people and do construction and all that sort of stuff, fill hotels. So none of that's happening. And, uh, and basically the message that's out there is that this is not going to go away for a long time. I mean, this is, this is the first time that we've had a completely novel virus infection and we're trying to vaccinate our way out of it. Now, vaccinating seven, eight, nine billion people, especially when you've got some vaccine refusers, which might compromise the control. And, uh, and when you have to get it out across the planet and manufacture all that product and have all those syringes and all that stuff, that's an enormous challenge. And I mean, some logistics of vaccination, I'm not talking about vaccinating particular countries until um, 2023, I think. And so so, you know, it's really, it's really an enormous uh, challenge. And so we're not going to go back to global normal very soon. 
uh, we may get back to normal internally, say, within Australia, which has kept the virus out pretty much, if we vaccinate the population and we stop flare-ups. But global normal is going to take a long time to achieve. So do you think that, well, first of all, do you think global normal is achievable? Do you think there will be a return to life as it was before? To exactly the way we were doing things before, because I think apart from anything else, it's not sustainable and it's dangerous. You know, this is a coronavirus. Before the year 2000, we had two coronaviruses circulating in the human population, two common cold coronaviruses. Uh, One was discovered in the US, one in Britain, um, um, and um, they were named actually by a Scottish electromicroscopist called June Almeida, uh, who did the work in London, and uh, first saw them. So that was two, and they caused colds and croup. And one of the problems was, because nobody ever perceived them as a very serious problem, nobody ever did that much work on them. Some of the virologists did. Then along in 2002, we suddenly get the SARS coronavirus, the first one, and that wakes people up. People start to do a lot of work on it, and, uh, but it burns out pretty quickly. It kills about 10% of people. This one kills less than 1%, but it's, there's this long hauler problem that we don't really understand fully yet, including how in, how, the incidence of it. And um, so it burned out. So a lot of the work that was going on on vaccination and drug development and stuff was all dropped. But then within another two years, we got two more of these common cold viruses coming across. And then we got the Middle Eastern respiratory virus, the, um, the one that came across from bats into camels into people in 2012-13. That's still circulating. MERS, it kills is, sti- MERS is still circulating. It's still circulating as far as I know, and it kills about 30% of people. Uh, but it circulates at a low level. It just grumbles away and sort of the Middle East region, a bit of Asia, I think. And then, uh, and then we've got this one. So since 2000, we've had five jump across, four in human circulation. This is not just that we haven't detected them before 2000, but actually that they are appearing now. I suspect they've been jumping across for ages, but they just don't go anywhere. So what's changed since year 2000? That's the question. And one very obvious thing that's changed is mass international passenger air tourism has massively ramped up, particularly from parts of the planet where you have live animal markets and you have people who are closer to wildlife. So I think this may be part of the dynamic. And I think unless we change that, and I don't see, you know, the, the cultural practice is very embedded in many Asian societies, for probably good reason, you know, they don't have that great access to fresh food sometimes. And in, in some places, they simply don't trust their food producing industry with good cause. And, uh, and so if that doesn't change, I think we'll see more of these and, uh, and we'll probably see more of them anyway, because the other factor, of course, is the massive increase in population. I mean, the population of the world is two and a half times what it was when I was born. 1940, it's more than, it's almost three and a half times what it was when the 1980 influenza pandemic happened. That was much worse. I mean, it killed 50 to 100 million people. So this is not nearly as lethal as that. 
But the reason our hospitals are all overwhelmed is because the hospitals can actually do something and save lives now. Back then, all they could do really was put them in tents and nurse them. Mm. Yes, it, it's funny. Things are changing rapidly, really. Um, population yes. growth, s- social patterns, mm. and the way the we live, urbanisation, all contributing. Yeah, and then the, there's the enormous, uncosted uh, um, greenhouse gas emissions from the whole globalisation thing. I mean, nobody will tackle it. And so we've got to have some integrity and honesty and face up to these issues or we're going to get into very dangerous situations. Well, Britain has been reasonably good about it, I think, even under, under Boris and, uh, and has, has taken it on. But Australia, with a big investment in fossil fuel industries and those people being very powerful and giving money to the right side of politics, I mean, the political right, uh, it's, uh, it's been a tragedy, really, what's happened. Yes, maybe we'll touch on that um, in a minute. But just just to stay with with the coronaviruses. So, given the expansion in the number of them that at least seem to be appearing, do you think, therefore, that this pandemic is just one of a pattern of pandemics we're going to be seeing over coming decades? I hope not. But I think if we've got any sense, and I've been writing this. Um, and it'll be in this book I'm doing at the moment, we should use it as a learning experience, as a teaching exercise. We should look at it from every possible aspect, from scientific, um, tourism, economics, uh, political, every possible aspect, and see what we can do to either prevent this happening again or to be ready for it. Uh, the only thing I can think of to be ready for it, we've all seen our science has fantastically advanced in, in even the, since even the original SARS outbreak. We're, we're much further forward. And we had, when the virus sequence was announced in mid-January, we had uh, people already starting to make vaccine product. They went straight into it. All they needed was the virus sequence and to make, say, the Jenner vaccine or the mRNA vaccines. All you need is that. Mm -hmm. Um, The Jenner vaccine, you just need to pop it into an adenovirus, which was a type of uh, strategy they've been following for some time, and and so on. So so though the mRNA vaccines are are new for human use, at least. So, um, So that started straight away. But as we all know, it took about a year to get vaccine product out into people's arms. And that's because of all the testing and face safety testing. And there were some concerns about some vaccine experiments that have been done with the original SARS. Fortunately, haven't been replicated with this one. It seems okay. So, um, so that's an issue. And then the other therapeutic, you need two things. You need vaccines, which are very cheap to deliver relative to treatments. The other therapeutics that have to go through all that are the monoclonal antibodies. And they're also highly specific for, this, for whatever the novel pathogen is. So you can't make them ahead of time. You can only make them in response to the actual pathogen. And so that, that's taken a long time too, uh, even though it's easier to test. But they're, they're what saved Donald Trump, for instance. He was given eight grams of a monoclonal antibody early. You have to give them early with these infections. And that's why they haven't been used a lot because they're very expensive. Yeah, yeah exactly. You don't necessarily know early that you're going to develop bad symptoms. So I think one of the things we should do is, is, is do what we've done for AIDS and what we've got for influenza. 
Again, the anti-influenza drugs have to be used very early, but they target common molecular pathways. The flu ones and the, and the retrovirus ones target common molecular pathways that are used by all the influenza viruses, for instance. So you can use them against uh, any novel influenza virus. You can use them against um, uh, influenza B virus as well as A, which are the ones we normally worry about. So, um, so, and you need several of them so you don't get mutants emerging. So I think we should do that for the coronaviruses. And we should do it for a, possibly another class of viruses, the paramyxo or henipotype viruses, which have also been jumping over uh, Nipah virus in uh, Malaysia and uh, Hendra virus here. I think they're not as massive a threat, but I think they're still a threat. These bat-borne viruses, they're all bat-borne, these ones. Um, what is I, it about I, bats? Why? Why are they coming from bats? I think the viruses live with them. They don't use so much the very specific part of the immune response we use that eliminates things, but often causes a lot of damage. They, uh, they seem to be using more what we call the innate system, uh, which allows the bat and the virus to live comfortably together. So these are very well evolved to live in bats, and there are a whole load of them in bats and other viruses as well. Bats carry a lot of stuff. I mean, the, the, the Ebola virus is carried by bats. Uh, and so, you know, the, that's the other class of we should have very really good drugs against. But that hasn't been happening. The reason, and it's really amazed me that it's been so, we just haven't seen good drugs coming through for COVID 2 and I'm, I'm really surprised by it, and I don't understand why. I'd like to know that. I think we'd have to fund it through some sort of international philanthropic government thing because there's no economic incentive for uh, drug companies to do this. Even though it's so widespread? Well, now there is an, an incentive to have it for this virus, mm. but there's no incentive to do it for possible future viruses, if you see what I mean. Mm. And we need several of them. We need, we need three, probably. It would be good to have three. Yeah. Right. Right. It's like cancer therapy. You need, you need several different drugs or you'll get mutants coming up. Mm. And in terms of strategies, we've already touched upon this extraordinary difference between the situation in Australia and New Zealand where, as you say, the, the virus is practically eliminated from the, from the native population and is just coming in from a few travellers and countries where it's going wild, like the US or UK. You, you could achieve some kind of local normality in Australia. But um, when do you think that we will be in a situation where people can, in a slightly different fashion, behave a little bit as they did before and travel around the world to conferences and go on holiday and all the rest of it? Well, internally in Australia, we, we've returned various places almost to normality. We, we've still been keeping crowd sizes down and insisting on people spacing at the cricket and all that sort of thing. But, um, but what's been happening is, is, um, is states have been closing borders against each other, which has been terribly disruptive for econ local economic activity because they were hoping to pick up a lot on the tourist industry and then we got a flare-up in Sydney. So you're starting to see borders close. People being stuck into state and having to quarantine when they come back into their own state. So that's been very disruptive. So I think Australia will get back to normality uh, internally once we roll the vaccine out and we hopefully get everyone vaccinated. But we're all waiting to see how well these vaccines actually work in the face of the pandemic. We've, we, we haven't, we've seen limited results from trials. We've seen very little from the Oxford-AstraZeneca group on what their actual results are. And, uh, 
and that's one of the vaccines we're, I think, planning to roll out. Um, the other one's the Pfizer, which seems to be pretty good. But we're ready, waiting really to see what happens in Britain and in the US as they roll vaccine out. And Britain's being much more effective at getting the vaccine out than the Americans. I mean, you've got to give credit for that. So we're hoping we'll see a downturn with the vaccination. Yes, but as you say, there, there are many questions. How long it lasts, the, the immunity that it affords, and whether it covers the different variants that are popping up. Uh, the variants so far are not a problem. I mean, the, um, I think it hasn't changed in the key antigenic site in a way that would subvert the vaccine. This virus does mutate, and that's why we've been able to develop a whole new science, basically, of genomic epidemiology. Uh, that, that, here, that happened in our institute where the bacteriologists, who were very much into gene sequencing, uh, simply pivoted and have sequenced all the... Um, I think they've sequenced at least 70% of the viral isolates we've had when we did have a big ramp up and we, we isolated them from hotel uh, quarantine. We're mainly returning Australians who are wanting to get back home. You have to quarantine for two weeks after they get here uh, with testing at the at coming in and going out. And so um, that, uh, that, that's, uh, that's almost a new science. So we know what viruses are circulating. But uh, nothing yet is, uh, is, looks as though it will defeat the vaccine, including the, the, the high transmission one that you're seeing in the UK at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think the vaccine will still hit it. But the vaccine, it could change, and then we'd have to pivot and make a new vaccine. And in terms of the longevity of immunity? We have no idea because we don't know. I mean, with the common cold coronaviruses, people get infected in se- sequential years. So the common cold coronaviruses don't give great immunity. Uh, we're hoping, actually, the vaccines might be, do better than the infection. Uh, we don't know. We, we do know that some people are making a reasonably good response to the COVID, the SARS-CoV-2, but we also know that some people are making a pretty poor response, and not just because of age, and we don't understand that, and we think the virus is messing with the immune system in some way. Viruses do that. They have various mechanisms that can uh, lead to immune escape. And so we don't, and it's, uh, we, it hasn't evolved like that in us the way, say, herpes viruses have, which have lived with us forever. But, um, but we, we don't understand, we don't understand what we fully, what we call the pathogenesis of the infection, how the disease develops. Initially, we thought it was like a bad flu. And, and, uh, and it was just a respiratory infection, pneumonia, but it's not. It's much more than that. It's what, what we call a coagulopathy. It's a systemic infection. The virus can get around the body and the blood. And probably most of the people who died, it's been that. And, uh, uh, and it, uh, they die from strokes. And uh, they're, they're what the clinicians call them happy hypoxics. They come into hospital. They're feeling pretty good. They're not feeling great, but they're feeling pretty good. But when they test them, they find their oxygen, blood oxygen levels are horrifically low. And then they'll rapidly go into decline. And, uh, and it's due to, not due to lung damage the way it is in flu uh, to the actual virus damage of the lung. In flu, you kind of drown in your own lung fluids if you die. But in this thing, you die because you're, the little blood vessels that are getting the oxygen from the lung alveoli are, are full of little clots and cells we call neutrophils, which are not nice cells to have around in that sort of situation. And so you're just not getting oxygen because of really you're getting a clotting problem. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who've had strokes. A number of instances of younger people who haven't really had much of a bad primary thing, but then they've had a stroke. 
And this is because the virus is getting into the cells lining the blood vessels, can get into the heart and damage the heart. And that's why we don't know, we, why we know the deaths from this. We really don't know the long-term debility spectrum that we'll see. I suppose most of us who think of viruses just think of them as horrific things that we want to avoid and want to avoid touching any of our loved ones. You've spent a life studying them. Do you think of them at all differently? Do you admire their, their cleverness? Do you? No, 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 they're not clever. They're just, just evolution, you know. It's the way evolution works. I mean, they, they, they multiply very fast and some of them uh, change very quickly. They have different survival strategies, viruses. Um, the herpes viruses, the ones we all live with, and we, we're infected with for life, like the cold sore virus, herpes simplex, or Epstein-Barr virus, the one that causes mononucleosis in teenagers. That We live with those viruses all through our life. Uh, we're persistently infected. There are a number of other viruses we're persistently infected with. We've only now discovered by gene sequencing. We don't know what they do, but they don't do a lot of harm as far as we know. But those viruses persist in us because they've developed molecular strategies which allow them to go latent or to grumble away without the immune system knocking them off. So they're relatively benign in a way. But then another virus like Lassa fever or, or like, um, like Ebola, say, it's, a, it's probably a bat virus that it crosses occasionally into us and is enormously lethal for us. We, we haven't adapted to it at all. The influenza viruses survive in nature by mutating all the time. They're, we're just occasion. We're not important hosts for flu viruses. They're, they're, they're virus diseases of aquatic birds that jump into us and also can jump into and kill seals and whales and leopards and, you know, just about anything really that's mammalian. So, um, so they all have different strategies, but it's just evolution basically. And you can see these different evolutionary strategies. And very interestingly, if you look at, different species that have, say, pox viruses, you can see that over the millennia, they've evolved similar mechanisms in different species with quite different viruses, different mechanisms in, in the sense of what they target, not the way they do it. Hmm. Hmm. So they're, it's, they're, they're not clever, but they're, they're basically multiplying fast and immune se and selection uh, brings forth these variants. They don't have a brain. <laughs> Four <laughs> eyes. They can't even move themselves around. They're just successful. Yeah, they can't even move themselves. I mean, bacteria can move themselves around. Viruses can't. Clever is the wrong word, but I, I know it's, 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 it's clever. It's, it's clever. It's, clever's okay, but it's basically it's, it's, it's evolution. And, then, and people who don't believe in evolution, that, that I think they're talking about human evolution, and they think we're made in God's image. But you know, viruses, bacteria, all these things are evolving all the time. When you're talking about mutation, you're talking about evolution. And of course, one of the things we've got to worry about is, especially if we've got a partially popular, uh, vaccinated population is the actual vaccine driving evolution of the virus so that it's no longer hit by the vaccine. And that's what happens with flu. I mean, the, you know, the immune response drives evolution. But flu viruses mutate at an incredibly high rate. Uh, this virus doesn't. It does mutate, but not at a very high rate. It's a, it's a much more complicated virus than flu. Right. And complication dictates the rate of evolution. Yeah. It, well, it, it's got a proofreading mechanism. Which, which flu doesn't have. And, uh, and HIV also mutates at an incredibly high rate. 
and it doesn't have any proofreading me mechanism. This one does, and it's about two to three times as big as those viruses, a lot more genetic material. So it's using other strategies to survive, and basically it's a bat virus anyway. So um, the herpes viruses, for instance, don't mutate uh, at all, really, but they've got really good long-term strategies that they've developed to live with us. Uh, and then the insect-borne viruses on the whole don't make, mutate a whole lot because they have to be able to multiply both in us and the insect. And that's very demanding. And if you start mutating things, you, you lose that. Even though the pandemic is dominating daily life and politics at the moment, Peter Doherty continues to see the bigger picture. Global warming and climate change are the topics he foresees will get the most attention once the pandemic has been brought under control. Let's, let's just end on climate change because it's nice to look forward to a post-pandemic time when uh, we can think more about this issue which is with us now and will be with us then just as much, if not more. Are you, are you feeling at all hopeful that the world is going in the right direction? I, th I think it's very slow and cumbersome. Uh, there's quite a bit happening at the moment. I think, you know, Europe and Britain have generally been pretty good. The United States has been, has been a catastrophe, especially under Trump. Um, we'll see what Biden can do. He's very committed. China's made various commitments. Um, very hard to know what's going on in China, especially now, I think. Uh, but they've made those commitments and uh, countries like Japan and so forth. I think Australia, you know, we, we live on the biggest solar collector on earth. Um, we've got uh, enormous wind potential and stuff. And I think if we, for instance, if there's a global move towards using hydrogen as a transportable energy source, we could do an enormous amount. And that's that movement is starting here. But at the moment, we've still got a, a national government that's very much in, in, in uh, bondage to the fossil fuel industry. And uh, that's partly political, partly money, um, because they don't want to use, lose those, those electorates in an election. So, so but it, I think there's a bit of movement happening, but not nearly fast enough. I'd, I'd uh, really like to see a lot more happening. But, uh, you know, the one hope really, Adam, is always that one thing is absolutely inevitable, is that people who are very young now will take over from the people who are in power now. That is inevitable. And one, and from what I know of my own grandchildren and from that generation, I think they're basically, a lot of them are better people, quite frankly. That is encouraging. Yeah, I hope that's true. And I hope it's true globally. But I think a lot of them are very concerned. They're frightened. Um, and uh, and uh, they want to do something. And they're angry about it too. So. Mm. Let's hope that that actually translates into action, real action. Well, let's, let's just hope that the current situation doesn't leave a generation sort of, I don't know, lagging behind, feeling disenfranchised, not having had the education they would have liked to have had. Well, maybe it will, it'll work out, I guess. Yes, I've got two grandsons who are both at university. They've done all the course, coursework online at home. They've actually got better grades because they haven't been partying. <laughs> But they've been missing out on, on a, and particularly the American grandson who's, um, you know, that, that college experience of going away to college is so much central to the American growing up. 
And um, but you must say, from what you've been seeing in politics, a lot of people that go to college in the United States seem to escape the process of education, but uh, the um, but they have a good time. Uh, so so he's missed out a bit there, but I hope he'll sort of go on and do some postgraduate work at least and, and be able to bring that up again. Um, and uh, so so th there is that element to it, and I think that's that's a great great pity, of course, that they missed that those occasions that are important. Um, they, they weren't, a lot of them weren't really important when I was growing up. The idea of the, the school prom and graduating from primary school. Nobody graduated from primary school when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it did you fine. You didn't need that. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I should be an example for anyone, quite frankly, but, you know, we are what we are, right? It's been really enjoyable speaking. Thank you very much indeed and fascinating. Well, it's great to talk to you, Adam, and be well and be safe. You've just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith by Filt for Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Sally Henriksen, and I'm Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. This episode is from season two of the show. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.